Okay, welcome. Uh, we're very glad to have you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this round bag lunch. Cheryl Conti is an old friend of the Shorenstein Center, and uh, she is someone who has been following um, digital technology and it's especially its impact on African Americans for some time. She's a founder of Jack and Jill Politics, which is uh, an organization or a website that has been very focused on, on the African American experience of the middle class African American experience, especially in terms of politics. She is now a partner at Fusion Strategy, a company that specializes in helping nonprofit organizations and foundations use social media to create social good. Her focus for us today is on the digital divide. The digital divide is something that um, has been viewed with great alarm by people for some time, meaning the, 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 the perceived barrier between people who are digitally uh, literate, who have access to digital technology, and those who do not. Uh, it turns out that it's not as simple as that. Here comes Nolan Bowie, who is one of the people who's been following digital divide stuff for about as long as, uh, as it's been an issue. Cheryl is going to talk to us about this subject today, and my sense is that what she has uh, found in her research is something that is counterintuitive and at the same time uh, points to a, a, a world that is a different one than the one that we have been expecting. Uh, Cheryl, we're very glad to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much. And thank you all for coming out on a, I don't know, rainy, snowy, we'll find out what's going to happen. So this is my story. I'm going to talk for about 15, 16 minutes, and then hopefully we'll have plenty of time for questions, answers, dialogue, and debate. Uh, we've got some folks come on in. There's plenty of seats up here, a few over here. All right. So this is me. That's my Twitter handle. Today people might know me as an innovative and inspirational technologist who creates award-winning websites and digital campaigns that drive social change. Uh, I was listed as one of the most influential women uh, in 2010 by Fast Company in their then newly created activist category for my work. Uh, and here's uh, just a couple of really quick examples of the work that my team and I do. This is a campaign called Mountain Heroes that we did with Earth Justice. Uh, we broke through our photo petition drive twice uh, in favor of stopping mountaintop removal. Uh, it was a campaign that used email, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Pinterest, you name it, uh, to uh, encourage people to uh, listen not just to folks like Edward Norton, Woody Harrelson, uh, and Daryl Hannah about this issue, but people who actually live on the mountaintops that are being destroyed. And I'm proud to say that not only were we able to take those petitions to Congress, but Patriot Coal actually has agreed one of the largest coal companies to stop blowing the tops off of mountains, which is crazy, right? Like, you can't put a top back on a mountain. It's crazy. For one campaign, uh, which fights poverty around the world, we actually created this mashup of both Twitter and Google Maps that encouraged people around the country to persuade the White House to fund a vaccination program that would save four million kids' lives uh, over 
let's see, uh, a three-year period uh, at a pretty low cost for the U.S. government. Uh, it was successful. I won't go into all the details. So successful that we actually used the same technique to pressure uh, number 10 Downing Street uh, in England. Um, we've used this in a few other locations. Uh, perhaps one of our most famous campaigns that we recently took up is Jose Antonio Vargas. Some of you may know him as a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist by day. Uh, and as it turned out, he was an undocumented immigrant by night. And so he bravely came forward to tell his story uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, it was a New York Times cover story. But before that, we had prepared the campaign uh, very assiduously, including uh, video to make it a very shareable story. The week that it came out in June 23rd, uh, 2011, it was the most shared story on the internet, not just in the US, on the entire internet, because it was such a moving uh, story. Uh, twice it has created change for Americans. The first was they stopped, the Obama administration stopped deporting people like Jose, pregnant mothers, people who were not criminals, people who had come to the United States as children. Um, and this uh, past year when he did, uh, we did another push for the campaign, it resulted in work permits for uh, young dreamers uh, like Jose. So we're really proud of that campaign. Some more about me. Here's a photo of me uh, with Mark Zuckerberg. You can see him there at the middle. And friends at a Facebook party at South by Southwest a few years ago. So you may wonder what it's like to be the only black woman in a room full of the world's top techies. You might think that I was born a black nerd or blurred, uh, <laughs> as we're now being called in the media. And the truth is that I was once this kid, yeah, just another struggling minority scholarship student, hoping to find a job someday that would pay for my fancy Ivy League edu uh, education. And some of you may know what that is like. Uh, when I first moved into my dorm room at Yale, I told my mother that we'd have to find a way to get me a computer. Otherwise, I'd never be able to compete with all the other kids. My mom was a teacher. My father was dead. We didn't have a lot of money lying around. I found a program that allowed me to buy a Mac from the school store and attach it to my student loan so I would pay it far, far into the distant future. Uh, and I made all the arrangements, but when the day came to pick it up, I was scared, terrified. I'd never owned anything uh, quite like that. So I dragged along my boyfriend from the seventh grade, Michael, to pick up this lovely Mac SCX. Uh, that's not the actual, you know, I found that on the internet. Um, but it looks a lot like it. Uh, so I, I took my boyfriend from the seventh grade, Michael, who was also at Yale, to uh, on the pretense that it might be heavy. Um, but truly, I was just scared of the darn thing. Uh, I, then I made him sit on my bed, and while I set it up, because I was worried I might actually blow it up, or you know, the whole dorm, or just screw up somehow. And Michael was very supportive in the way that someone who's known you since you were 13 can be. So setting up that Mac SE gave me a big boost of confidence. I felt good that I was able to get it working without too much drama. What really changed my life, however, was this woman, Margaret Krebs. You see, as part of my scholarship package at Yale, I had to have a school job. And I was super broke. The highest paying job on campus at the time was washing dishes in the kitchen. I hated washing dishes, still do, uh, and figured I wouldn't learn much that way. 
So the next highest paying job was being a computer assistant helping other students at the library and dorm computer labs. So that's what I went for because obviously I was a computer genius since I set up my Mac SE all by myself. And that's where I met Margaret. I'm pretty sure I was the first black kid to ever apply for the job. Uh, and I convinced Margaret that I was a fast learner and that I liked helping other people. So she gave me the job, she took a chance. So uh, the first computer assistant meeting was pretty interesting. It was straight out of Big Bang Theory, for those of you who know that series. Out of 30 or so kids, there were only four women, women and for three years, only one black person, me. I don't know why I didn't just turn and run that first day. I think it was because in a room full of misfits, I wasn't alone. Uh, in fact, my fellow computer assistants, who were the geekiest guys on campus, I mean, that you can imagine, were pretty welcoming, although very curious, about me. Uh, and my new super dork friends invested in training me. They gave me the confidence that I could learn what I needed to know. And after a few stumbles, I actually came to enjoy it. I never experienced racism from my fellow computer assistants, although I sometimes did from the very people asking for my help with the library printer or their floppy disk. After I graduated, I saw the opening in the market. There were lots of jobs for folks with computer skills. I steered my career in a direction that would eventually unite my newfound love of gear and gadgets with my passion for connecting people and creating new ways for their voices to be heard. I've worked with some of the most amazing people on the planet, including Clay Shirky. I guess some of you probably know Clay. Yeah, he's amazing. And this was all because Margaret and my fellow computer assistants looked at me and saw someone who could. From around the time that I was struggling to learn how to use a mouse through the past few years, there's been a lot of concern that minorities were lagging behind in their use of the internet and computers. This is in part because broadband landlines were slow to reach minority neighborhoods. Dire predictions arose around the supposed effects of this digital divide, which fortunately have not come true. This iteration of the digital divide is dead. How did it die? Well, first cell phones became cheaper and therefore more accessible than these same cell phones allowed for internet access. So you had large groups of people who became really good at using the internet on their mobile phones. The phones just kept getting smarter the mobile internet just kept getting faster. Today, whites are the ones who lag behind all other groups in their use of advanced internet, smartphones, and social media. Pew Internet has shown that 28% of black people use Twitter, and 13% use it every day. Hispanics are not far behind. These numbers are two to three times the rate of whites. And so sometimes people look at this and they wonder, where are the white people? So on the far, I guess that would be your right, where it says non-ethnics, that's white people. Right <laughs> In case anyone's confused, the small bars, yes. Just, just so we're clear. This, by the way, is the percentage of people who use these services daily, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Um, and as you can see, uh, there's definitely a new digital now, are divide. Are these numbers emergence. out of date? Because you said 28%, for instance. Uh, well, 28%, that's a Pew study. This is actually um, um, another study from Merkel. Um, you know, it is out of date, but I would assume, given what we know about Twitter, which is a more recent, that's a 2012 study, that the, the, the gap has actually increased between whites and other groups. 
Okay, it's not, it's, it doesn't look better for whites, in other words. Women have also taken big strides and now dominate social media. Comscore says that women are the majority of social networking users and spend 30% of their time, more of their time, on these sites than men. According to Nielsen, mobile social network usage is 55% female. Those are 2012 numbers. This shift in influence and power in favor of women has been tremendous. One example is a new social network called Pinterest. How many of you know about Pinterest or are users? Yeah, pretty sophisticated crowd. So you probably know that Pinterest's user base is about 80% women and their Facebook fans are about 97% female. Pinterest referral traffic is already approaching levels of Twitter and Facebook. For those of us who don't know Pinterest, what is Pinterest? Oh, sure. So Pinterest is a new social network, uh, and it's what's great about it is that it's very mobile-friendly. Uh, it's driven around I images. Uh, so another popular service that's a little bit like it maybe is um, Instagram, which you may have also heard of, which was purchased by Facebook uh, a little while ago. So so what? You may be thinking, that's awesome and amazing for black people, Latinos, Asian Americans, Native Americans, and chicks. What's in it for me if I'm a white man? Or what do I have to give up to create this bright new future for everyone else? I hear you. I've worked for some white guys, and some white guys work for me now. I've even dated some white guys. I am sympathetic to your plight. <laughs> After all, in 2011, over 50% of the kids born in America were not white. 30 years from now, whites will be the minority. It will be soon, in your lifetime, for most of the folks in this room, or at least your kids' lifetimes. As a lifelong card-carrying member of a minority, I've got some advice that can help you make the most of these shifting demographic ties. tides. It's time to get down with the brown, to get jiggy with the jiggly. Jiggly parts, that is, as women like myself tend to have. Right now, we have a situation where resources are not efficiently finding the best investments because of false assumptions, lack of information, and straight-up bigotry. In a conference full of other venture capitalists, John Doerr said that when you look at all the world's greatest entrepreneurs, quote, they all seem to be white, male nerds, who've dropped out of Harvard or Stanford, and they have absolutely no social life. So when I see that pattern coming in, which was true of Google, it was very easy to decide to invest. Hmm, yes. Perhaps Dorr is unaware of the man for whom the term the real McCoy was coined. There's a time when the railroads built this great country. A man named Elijah McCoy invented an innovation that helped trains run faster with less need for maintenance and thus more profitably. Railroad executives wanted to know if the locomotives that they were running were using the real McCoy, not some cheap knockoff. Elijah McCoy happened to be the son of slaves, and he happened to be black. Yet, even though we use his invention today in trains, for those of you who took the train to work today, that train still uses a version of the real McCoy the real McCoy struggled to find capital investment for years for a groundbreaking invention that changed a nation. 
150 years later, not much has changed. Silicon Valley likes to think of itself as a meritocracy, as a racism-free zone. And that's the right spirit to have. I've personally benefited from that way of thinking. I've also seen the results of a failure to acknowledge bias and the skewing impact it's having in investment. And I think we can say also, we can talk about this in the Q&A in politics. So the old digital divide is dead, but we now face a new digital divide. A lack of training and a lack of skilled workers, not a lack of ability or a lack of jobs. There's a lack of investment and in content consciously aimed at women and minorities. So let's break that down. Lack of training. Out of the entire city of San Francisco, 15 black kids took calculus last year. And only 25 in Oakland. Yeah, not impressive, is it? This is just one example of the type of education kids need to prepare for a career in technology that they're just not getting. Lack of skilled workers. Today, we have people across the country who need jobs desperately, yet good jobs in technology are going unfilled. Unfilled vacancies at tech recruiting firms in Silicon Valley have tripled in the last year. The shortage is causing salary inflation and instability. Our work, my work, is slowed down when we can't find qualified, trained, or even interested people. In addition, the people using the services of tomorrow are not represented in companies creating products for them today. Ultimately, that has to impact the quality of the product. <clears throat> companies continue to create software, apps, and interfaces with the assumption that their audience is primarily white males. Any marketing pro will tell you, you have to know your audience. I recently played a video game on my Connect. Yes, I do it. I'm a nerd. I admit it. Uh, but it only had two choices of female avatars. A young white woman and a younger white woman. Not exactly a game I buy or recommend. Finally, let's talk about the lack of investment. According to a study from Kauffman Foundation, only 4 to 9% of venture capital has gone to female entrepreneurs. So according to my friend Rachel Payne, who until recently led global alliances at, at Google, if you're a woman who has been successful in this business, like me, you have bootstrapped, dodged, darted, borrowed, begged, and ultimately innovated past anyone's wildest imagination. As Dave McClure of 500 Startups said, that means if a tech company is not <laughs> headed by a white male college nerd dropout, it's probably undervalued. It's a really good deal. <clears throat> so what's in it for you? Well, opportunity, money, and power. It's time to recognize that the person clicking like in Facebook or who just reblogged a video in Tumblr or uploaded a photo in Instagram or just retweeted something smart and on a mobile phone, it's more likely to be black or brown. Those are the companies that will succeed and make the most money in the future. While I may stand out in a, in a crowd of geeks now, this will change with or without your help, nor will it make this country stronger or more prosperous if we are solely reliant on importing talent from countries that frankly have better educational systems than ours. 
Josh Mailman and Drew Bernard didn't invest angel funding in my new software product called Attentively because they feel sorry for me. My clients don't hire me because they feel sorry for me. My staff didn't come to work for me because they feel sorry for me. They saw the results I've been able to create helping amazing organizations touch millions of lives. They looked past my race and gender and saw someone with whom they could do good while doing good. So how can you get in on this action? Yeah. Well, if you own a big tech company, consider setting up a free or low cost training in computer programming, robotics, or basic engineering at a school in a poor or mostly minority neighborhood. Think of these as fertile <coughs> recruiting stations where you can cherry pick among overlooked talent willing to work harder and more cheaply than you might imagine. If you own a small company, <coughs> consider an internship and see if you can recruit someone who isn't a young white male college dropout nerd. Hire someone who may have less skills or experience but more promise and drive. If you're a teacher, there might be some of you in here, consider infusing more tech talk, no matter the subject you teach. Inspire your students to see themselves succeeding in the world of technology. Because let me tell you something, there is no job in the future that will not require technology. The garbage men and women use GPS. When UPS comes to my house to deliver packages, they use a mobile device, right? There's no job that will not require a comfort with technology. If you're a parent, let your kids play video games. Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, recently said that all the female technologists she knows played video games as a kid. When I heard that, I could only think back to the many hours I spent playing Pac-Man and Frogger with my brother on our Atari 800, uh. dating myself again. Uh, he's a pilot today. Both of us landed in careers that require technology. He has to run training simulations all the time. It's like a video game, he says. If you're a leader or a lawmaker, advocate for more funding for job training. Let's invest more in our educational system. Inner city schools can be places where you find not only the best football players and rappers, but also where the next best technological geniuses will come from. If you're a venture capitalist, consider adding some companies to your portfolio that show diversity. That's not affirmative action, and it's not a handout. Diversifying your investments is just smart investing. Anyone will tell you that. Open your mind. Anyone can be a geek. You come in all shapes, all colors, and all sizes. Even blurbs. Open your wallet. It takes money to make money. And now is the time to invest with imagination. Information is the new oil, the new railroad. Open your heart. Margaret Krebs touched millions of lives through changing one person's life. Mine. Sorry, this presentation always makes me cry. <laughs> True power comes from nurturing new power. We have the power to shape the future and decimate the new digital divide. You have the power to determine your role in a new era. Not only can we bury racism and sexism, but set the stage for a stronger, more prosperous future for ourselves and for our country. That's the birth of something new, and that's what's up. Feel free to retweet. Thank you very much.
Cheryl, <clears throat> let me start the questioning and then we'll, we'll open it from there. Why don't we sit around the, on this side? Oh, now. yeah, that's probably more. You can look more easily seen. Yeah. Um, given, <clears throat> given the kind of undeniable impact, disproportionate impact that this technological, especially mobile technology, has had on minorities. Why is it so difficult to get a black kid to take calculus or an Hispanic kid to become a computer nerd or to see that opportunity, which is, seems to me so obviously there? Um, and given the interest in the product, you would think there would be something that would grow from that. What am I missing? Yeah, you would you would think. A part of it, I think, is cultural. You know, we have a culture mm -hmm. and a society right now that showcases only white male college dropout nerds. Um, and you have a you have under educated teachers who aren't familiar with these new technologies, right? Who are themselves of a of a generation that's not digital native. So they don't know how to encourage these because they aren't even aware themselves of the jobs that are out there. They don't know how to recognize the talent when they see it is part of the, the challenge. So it's, I think, partly a cultural problem where these kids are not given the confidence um, that they need to pursue or see themselves, not just as consumers of the technology, but as creators of the technology. Uh, they are not given the tools in education. We have an educational problem. And ultimately, I think we have a political problem. We're not putting, we're not investing, you know, the money at the federal or state level that's actually going to, you know, create the workers for the jobs, not only for the future, the jobs for today. So if you wanted to <clears throat> do some of the things that you were, you were urging, and you were talking about um, doing something in a, uh, a, a, a school in a district in Boston that was predominantly minority, and you wanted to encourage this, uh, given the realities of, of the public education system in our country, what would you do as the company? What would your project be? Yeah, so if I were a company, say Facebook, you know, you've got a situation where Facebook, you know, a, a company like Facebook or even Google, uh, doesn't perceive itself as able to create the workers. There are, you know, there's Oakland, there are lots of people without jobs in the Bay Area. And yet, right now, some of their focus is on importing talent, right? Rather than actually going to the schools themselves, the, uh, you know, two year colleges, right? Or the four year colleges, or even the high schools. You know, it's as simple as creating programs of having a job fair day you know, to educate the kids that these jobs exist. Here are the different ranges of the jobs that you can have. There's not just, you, you know, it's not just being a computer programmer. Obviously, there are different flavors of computer programming, but there's so many other careers that you can have in the technical world. Product design, uh, graphic design, um, marketing. What, <clears throat> one of the things that it seems to be happening also with great speed is the digital digitalization of, uh, of education. And I've seen predictions that in a relatively short time, a huge portion of secondary education is actually going to be done online, which is going to mean that there will be a flattening of, of the access 
to teaching talent. Everybody is going to be able to get the best teacher that Stanford in its online digital secondary school program can put up. Is that going to be a significant thing? Is that online? Is the just the, the existence of a of something that is going to take the the uncertainty of teaching instruction out of the process going to be a significant change change agent, you think? I think that will help. It, it certainly already is helping um, it, to level the playing field so that kids who are interested in this world, I mean, there are actually a lot of black technologists out there, you know, and they got there somehow, right? Um, that said, I, I think that is right now the market reality that people have. Someone wants you to share. I know. That's the story of my life. Of people. It's the story of my life. All right, we'll make, turn that all the way off. Yeah, I think right now the market is relying sort of uh, passively on a hope that maybe this is a situation that will just fix itself, right? And I, I think that we have to be much more proactive as a nation. Other nations are being proactive, right? When you talk about China or India or Singapore or even, you know, a fair number of African countries, one-third of Africans now own mobile phones, right? I mean, we are we are we don't have the most sophisticated mobile network. We're probably 24 or 25 in the world in terms of the strength and sophistication of our of our you know, digital interface, and yet we're still the creators. How long can that stay, right? When there's a when a kid in Malaysia can also access the Stanford um, professors, right? So we, I, I believe that we have to actually create that cultural shift. We have to create the educational shift, and we have to create the political will that actually transforms our attitudes towards you know this untapped talent in the U.S. So let me open this for. For discussion, Noah, let me ask you to respond to the idea that the digital divide is not a divide the way we thought of it before, but a new divide. How did you, how do you view that? Well, I think it's still part of the old divide is still with us. Um, I was curious at the title, uh, "End of the Digital Divide," and then uh, she explained that it was the old digital divide that was uh, gone. But if you uh, think about what she said in terms of the type, types of technologies available to minorities. She mentioned um, cell phones and smartphones. Uh, and use, basically, with those devices is generally in terms of consumption and not uh, uh, creativity or producing um, content. Um, and there's also another aspect of the digital divide. If we think about television, it's now all digital. And so-called HD radio is digital, and recent uh, statistics on, say, minority ownership, uh, well, minorities represent in excess of 35% of the population, ownership of broadcasting is like uh, around 4%, and of, uh, among blacks in terms of televisions, it's less than 0.7%. Um, also, there was uh, very little mention of public policy in terms of the role of government. Um, most People know now for about two years the FCC has been sitting on a national broadband policy which uh, has not moved very much. And even if implemented, it doesn't offer very much over a 10 year period. And in addition to that, it has uh, very little uh, new spectrum dedicated to it when they recognize there's insufficient spectrum. And there are means of achieving that. 
Uh, I also had questions uh, in terms of uh, what you said about the best teachers will be online. Uh, I question what you mean by best teachers. It may be uh, the most published or the ones who have done the most research, but it does mean best teachers because best in terms of relating to students is often on a personal level and how the kids relate to the teachers and the teachers relate and care for the students, which is sort of absent. I, I, I'm not an expert on this, I, I believe me, but I, my sense is that the teachers and the teaching is chosen for its efficacy in teaching rather than right, you know, I agree with that, blowing but, somebody's ego up. Best, well, okay, I, but, I, but the best, I, I mean, the only, but the only criteria for best that I would say would be meaningful would be if a kid in a disadvantaged school got the advantage that somebody who was in the most exclusive private school got by having access to well, someone who was not smart alone, but also able to communicate. Well, I agree there. The question is, in terms of public policy, what is the role of government? But you also have to look at the role of the individual, the role of schools, and the role of the community, uh, as well as the role of the corporations. Uh, do they have responsibilities? Uh, are the uh, civil rights groups, for example, typically, uh, are they participating in rulemaking proceedings that will enhance or limit the di digital divide? And the answer is generally no, because many of them are receiving grants and other subsidies from the telephone and cable companies, and they're not going to bite the hand. So how do you, plus you have, on top of all of that, uh, Citizens United with secret lobbying. Um, so it's going to be a, a hard mountain to cross in terms of limiting the digital buy, but it is possible. For example, I would argue that broadcasting is an obsolete technology. There's a provision in the Communications Act, Section 303G, which requires the FCC to make the best use of radio, which implies both in terms of efficiency and in terms of service to the public interest. And by reallocating that spectrum to unlicensed high-speed broadband, the United States can regain and become number one as opposed to being number 25. The reason it's number 25, 27, or 30, whatever it is, is because the government abdicated this responsibility to produce this kind of infrastructure for the 21st century and gave it to the businesses, which had no incentive with doing it. Let me, let me give Cheryl the opportunity to respond to some of that. I know that was, sure. a, long, <laughs> that was a long laundry list. Yeah, yeah. And, and great, <laughs> and great. And I would have loved to have included, you know, I only have 15 or 20 so minutes to speak. So, yes, I agree with many of your points, and I think it's actually a great uh, corollary to um, the talk that I gave. You know, the one place where, you know, uh, I would uh, highlight um, would be that even when you say look at, you know, people 55 and up, uh, smartphone usage is much higher even in that category among blacks than whites. Um, and so, you know, it, it is a problem, right, that they are consumers of the technology rather than creators of the technology, and that is uh, a challenge. That said, you know, there is a lot of content that's being created, and we saw the influence of women and minorities in this past election online, right? The uh, whole, um, I think the remarks about rape, for example, were it not for um, the internet or the pushback on uh, Susan G. Komen around Planned Parenthood, for example. You know, that wasn't really possible, that sort of level of, of voice that actually forced uh, Susan G. Komen to, to back off their stance, that forced uh, both Obama and Romney to start talking about how great 
a candidate they are for women, <laughs> even though they both had very different policies around women. Uh, you know, that's not really possible without, I think, uh, the internet and, you know, a, a much, a, a group of people who are better able to organize and share information as it's happening. Same with uh, minorities. Minorities, uh, blacks and Latinos to a level of 10 to 20 points higher than whites are much more likely to say, as a recent study showed, that they believe that the internet can be used to uh, persuade or to uh, change policy. Um, so, you know, when you've got, you know, something like only 40% of whites who believe that as opposed to, you know, 60% of African Americans and 50% of Latinos, you know, then you're setting the stage for a group of people who are willing, more willing, to use uh, digital means to communicate and to organize uh, than another group. So uh, one more example of that would be uh, the night of the election. I was actually on Current TV on their panel real time. And I could see, watching my Twitter feed and then searching on hashtags, that there was a movement online where people were tweeting, please stay in line. There's even a hashtag, stay in line, that were encouraging people. And, and we, you could see real time that people were literally tweeting from in, in the line to say, you know, I, I will be here until they close. You know, please do the same. So, you know, that type of energy where people are, are actually using the tools to communicate, I think that's the not only a, a shift in culture, but uh, a, a shift in, in politics that hopefully, mm -hmm. right, may result in shifts in policy as well. We'll have to see. Other questions? Uh, students first. We have students who have questions? Okay, sir. All right. Uh, sure. Thank you very much um, uh, for this super interesting talk. My name is Kevin Prager. I'm a mid-career uh, master's candidate. Uh, I'm currently employed by NATO, but this is my passion. <laughs> and <clears throat> I wanted to ask you, in your experience, do the internet giants, and I'm thinking of Google and Facebook type companies, but also Cisco's and et cetera, um, do they recognize that they have a responsibility to help create a better society, generally speaking? Um, are they sympathetic to the goals that you put forward? Sorry, it's a bunch of questions, but it really, sure. it's really one question. Okay. Um, do they, importantly, do they have internal structures or units that their role is to speak truth to management about social good or creating social good in their own interest? And if they don't, do you think that that would be useful? Do you think they should? Uh, well, yeah, sure. No, a lot of these companies are based in the Bay Area, uh, where I now live. Um, and having met some of the heads, not only heads, but executives uh, at some of these um, corporations, you know, are they sympathetic? Absolutely. Um, you know, do they understand that the technologies that they are building are creating social change? Uh, both culturally and otherwise, absolutely, and, and are, I think, exquisitely sensitive to that in, in many ways. And in, in some cases, actually, they built uh, the, these tools to create some kind of change, you know, to, to change the world, broadly speaking. Not really, you know, necessarily sure what that means. You know, in terms of this topic of the digital divide uh, and uh, creating the workers of the future, no, I think they are not necessarily uh, as uh, awake or aware um, that that 
you know, there is a, a, a problem here that it is in part their, not just their responsibility, in their best interest, in the interest of their bottom line, right, right to actually create the workers of the future. We've already, to a certain extent, run out, right? Um, so then the question is, you know, where are they going, how are, do they plan to source and to advocate for training the workers of the future? Uh, and those workers are going to have to come from here, and they can't all be white, and they can't all be male. We've just sort of run out, you know, of those people. So, you know, I think that, you know, the awareness there um, is uh, dawning. Uh, I think there's uh, there was a, a series called uh, Black in America that Soledad O'Brien uh, did, and she recently did one um, on Silicon Valley. Uh, that I recommend highly that sparked a lot of discussion, particularly in the Bay Area around this entire this topic actually um, and a couple of my friends were actually profiled um, in the series, uh, which was interesting but uh, I think that uh, you you had someone like a Mark Andreessen saying some things where he couldn't name a black technologist you know or a black CEO in technology, um, even though he knew that that was what <laughs> The, the whole special was about. Uh, so, you know, it, I think that sparked uh, a sea, started to spark a sea change um, in investing, where you see more investing or a willingness, a drive to invest and to nurture uh, companies that are run by women and minorities. It's, it's small but growing. But I think that uh, where there is overall uh, social a willingness and an awareness of their social responsibility, it has not yet shifted in this direction. You know, <clears throat> vocational education is something that has worked very well in this country in many places. And it's worked because companies in the particular area basically train workers in a vocational education program supported by the state to do jobs in their companies. Is that not something technology companies are doing? I mean, Not right now. Not really, no. I mean, not in any sort of organized, systematic, no. scaled way. So, go ahead. No, they do. Thankfully, Microsoft has special program, not only in the United States, in Europe. It's an excellent one. For training people to work for Microsoft? Training, yes. Yeah, yeah, Microsoft. Yeah. I mean, well, that's Microsoft, but I mean, yes, honestly, I mean, we're not seeing that, and which is pioneering. I'm not an advocate of yeah. Microsoft. I think <laughs> IBM, another company that I think is also doing a good job with that, is probably IBM has done. You know, they definitely. Well, it speaks are a to your point focused, about their self-interest. Uh, that, right. Uh, that, that's right. Yeah. Yes, Tara. Um, when you talk about the workers of the future, what about the workplace of the future? Because uh, your presentation was really great and wonderful and inspiring, but I just wonder, like most. There's, it's possible that the, you know, workplaces could be pretty Dickensian. Like the digital workshop is pretty grim. So um, how do you humanize it or make it make the working conditions for these people decent? Well, I don't know if the digital. I don't know that I would agree with that. That the digital workshop is. Uh, she worked for the Daily Beast. Uh, oh, you worked for the Daily Beast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it, it does. That's not grim, but I it, it can be. I mean, it, it, it depends. I mean, that really depends on the culture of the company. You're not going to get your best work out of your employees. I mean, ultimately, uh, certain types of technology. It is a creative discipline. Right? It, it has, it's not just science, it also has art to it. Uh, it also has a very personal side. So, you know, if you're creating a, a grim, you know, sort of dank workplace that's just, you know, people sitting in, you know, cubicles, 
you're not going to get your best work out of them. And that's why you see in a lot of the big tech companies in, and even the small tech companies in uh, Silicon Valley at least, um, or Silicon Alley in New York, you know, you see open work plans, you know, it's bright, it's cheerful. You know, the companies that get it and want to grow actually try to create um, a good workplace. I do think that women, you know, I think where you really get into workplace issues is, uh, you know, women and flexibility around, um, you know, flexible schedules and family. Technology can be a great career for that. You know, in in theory, there's nothing to stop you from working from home, from working flexible hours. You know, I, I can, my office are those three pieces of equipment wherever I go, right? Um, our, uh, my co-CEO just and co-founder just had a baby, you know, and she, you know, more or less took two weeks off and, you know, has been able to scale up. We've tried to be very family friendly so that people can, you know, work in a flexible way. I think that is really the, um, you know, the, the change that we need for the future. Gave her two weeks off to have a baby? No, she, she, took, she took two weeks off. But, you know, because it, we have a flexible work, you know, she was able to start, you know, even she loves working. Roz, there's nothing Rosalind Lemieux loves more than work. Yes, sir, you had a comment. Alex, it's not exactly a question. It's what Sherry described as the possible future and what you ask about the role of the government. It's a contribution to what you said. I was a Minister of Education in my country for four years. In, in what Europe, country was that? In Greece. In Europe we don't have uh, actually the problem that you described to have societies dividing, being divided <coughs> by the color or, but it's a class, it's a social class. I mean, it's a hundred percent possibility for a son of a worker in Germany to be a worker, than to be a doctor or a so the only mechanism that you have for the mobility of the society and to give to the people the possibility to feel equal and to be equal, it's education. And in education, Alex, I'm afraid, we don't have better work than the teamwork in the class. I mean, it's not to have the best professor in your screen. It's to give to the young person all the qualification mm -hmm. that only a teamwork and team spirit gives to form his personality and not only his, let's say, uh, ability to go and work to the internet and uh, job the gap. It's job the gap in his personality, not in his capability to use the new technologies. So I think that we have to invest as governments to education. It's the only system that provides to the young people the opportunity to start from an equal base in their lives. And nobody can replace this teamwork in the class. I do believe. I was a professor, I was a teacher no, also, I, I, not I, only I, minister I, of education. I'm not arguing with you. Yes, over here. Um, I just wanted to get to one of your earlier points that you had made in terms of, you know, this digital divide, while, while you may argue that, you know, part of the sort is done away with, and now, um, you know, we're seeing it transform in a different way. This consumption piece um, in terms of specific communities 
be more on the consuming end is something that I'm still trying to re, re, rework or think about in terms of how we can shift um, that kind of usage from a consumption end to a producing end because we see even a lot of the media representations of certain communities, uh, well, largely communities of color, perpetuates an image that is not <coughs> reflecting, you know, the blurbs that could be part of this process. So what what would you say would be a critical next step or tool in helping to sort of shift that um, uh, usage model from one less of a consuming end but not actually producing um, yeah, I think, you know, what I would love to see are more uh, of the blurs coming out of the shadows, in effect. Um, there's a lot of us out there, and some of them are famous. MC Hammer uh, is a big investor in a number of Silicon Valley startups and firms. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know that. He's well known in Silicon Valley for that. Um, but I think that, you know, you don't necessarily... You know, he hasn't achieved the national stage yet where he can talk about how he shifted his career from rap to technology in, a, in, a, in an essence. You know, you do have people like uh, Will I Am, who has actually pioneered some really uh, interesting um, science and technology programs with the White House and, and has been the voice to try to popularize and, and draw the link between what he does. I mean, Will I Am will tell you in a heartbeat hey, you know, what I do is completely reliant on technology. I can't make these beats or these dubs or these sounds without technology. It's how I do it. Uh, you know, I think you've seen a shift in his videos where you see him actually using the technology. You know, you, you see him actually holding up a Mac Air, you know, and, and you know, showing, you know, I think that the, he has tried to show that more. But ultimately, I think it's uh, a cultural shift where, you know, someone like Shaq isn't just tweeting, or LeBron isn't just on Twitter, but is talking about why they use Twitter, whether they have invested in Twitter, you know, do they have people who work for them who build tweet apps, for example, right? It's, it's partly a, you know, it's not a, a question of competence even. You know, these kids are able to use these technologies very effectively to create, to express themselves, but they don't see themselves yet as the people who can actually design and build the technologies. It's a, it's a question of confidence, not a question of, of competence, whether they're actually capable of doing it. Yeah. Um, my name's Ann Smith. I'm a social worker, and I've worked for 20 years with kids in schools in low-income areas. And I'm very interested in the work of the Algebra Project. I'm trying to think of his name, um, but he came out of the Civil Rights SNCC. I knew him in SNCC. And um, he evaluated why was it that so many low-income kids uh, don't go into math. And his concept was that math is taught at a, um, in, using language at a fifth grade level. And often um, kids can get the concepts without using language at that high level. Math is, is taught um, you know, word problems and other things. Whereas younger kids, kids who don't have a lot of language skills, can learn algebra and other things just by a new way of teaching through concepts. And um, this is something that's always frustrated me as a social worker because you can see kids quickly being divided into vocational and language-based education 
and the, the people who have gone on in technology have also had good language skills. But I would say that the kids that I see in those vocational programs have the design and concept and visual and artistic skills that are needed in designing. So something has to be done to be on the lower grade levels to teaching differently. I mean, all of what you've been talking about is still teaching in a um, language-based education. And all the people here who have succeeded, they succeeded in a language-based education. I'm hoping that media is not only going to be able to get better consumers, you know, because these kids are learning to be good consumers through this, but also be able to teach them in a way that they can design and take advantage of and create better ways of teaching. Is that I don't see that. I don't see it trickling down into the lower, you know, education system. I just, I'm so frustrated when I see kids who have such extreme talent that can be used in this new world, and the school system just doesn't connect. Yeah, it's just completely you know, failing them. Okay. Yes. Okay. Agreed. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, agreed. I, I think the school system, we because we have not made it a priority that those kids are important, you know, to the future of this nation, we're not, right, we, they, they're, you know, we have to find ways that work, that actually work, and make that a priority, and roll those out, and that's not happening right now. I agree with you totally. Yes, no. yeah. Cheryl, I'd like to know what you think, as a matter of public policy, regarding immigration of use of uh, visas, is it what, 5B, C? Uh, HB, whatever the yeah. thing yeah. is. H1B. It allows a lot of Asians, particularly from China, in India to work in both Silicon Valley and Kendall Square, which sort of uh, displaces possible jobs, positions for, say, Americans or American minorities to uh, have an opportunity or motivation to even go to school to get a degree to try to find a job. There's no opening and there's no uh, motivation. Well, you know, I immigration is part of what's made this nation great, right? And, mm -hmm. and, you know, many of the successful tech firms were, you know, launched by immigrants, including, say, Google um, and Sergey Brin. Um, at the same time, you know, we can't import enough. You know, some of those people want to stay in their home countries. You know, that we, you know, we've, we're actually, you know, at and in some cases past the, the H-1B cap. There are more jobs than there are people to fill them. And so, you know, we can't just immigrate, you know, immigrate our way out of this problem. You know, we, we have to train people, and we've got to get much more creative about how we train those people, um, people here in the U.S. Nolan, do you think these people you're describing are discouraged because they perceive there's not job opportunities? Uh, <coughs> no, uh, but uh, if there were more jobs, if, they'd, uh, if there was a scarcity, they'd uh, even raise the pay even higher, which would cause people in that direction if they thought they could not only have a job but make more money. I'm not sure what jobs we're talking about. I mean, you're talking about a $120,000 job or a $40,000 job kind of thing. Well, I'm not sure what the entry level is, but for computer engineers out of Stanford or MIT, I'm sure that they can call their own shots just like Harvard Law Grads. Yeah, no, the, I mean, the, and, and again, just to be clear, the problem is not are there enough jobs? Like, is there a job shortage? Absolutely. I mean, there is a, there is not a job shortage, 
for an employee for shortage. Not right. There's an employee shortage. I mean, there's there's plenty of jobs. I mean, what you know, people don't I think understand, and and again, what hasn't necessarily shifted in the culture is that yes, you know, being uh, a doctor, a lawyer, an athlete, a rapper. You know, those are great jobs that everybody knows pays well, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think people are unclear about the breadth and depth of, of careers that are available in technology. They have no idea what is the path to get there. They don't know how to get there. Um, and uh, thus, you don't have people who, and I think there's confidence. People don't see themselves as the type of person, you know, particularly if you're a minority or female, you don't necessarily see yourself as the type of person who could be successful in that world because there aren't a lot of examples shown to you and no one encourages you in that direction. Has Barack Obama tried to be a voice for this exact, for inspiring these kinds of people? Yeah, he has been a great supporter of STEM, uh, education, science, technology, engineering, and math. That's a program that they launched pretty quickly once they uh, were once the administration um, took hold, and they have actually worked hard to try to um, create like the White House Science Fair uh, gets makes news uh, every year. I think they have um, you know done what they can. Um, but I think there's a lot more to do, and, and I hope, you know, now that the administration has uh, had some big successes on health care and some on immigration, there's a lot of work to do still on immigration reform, uh, I really hope that education, particularly a, a, a revolution in how we approach STEM, um, that the administration takes that on, because that is something that would be a lasting legacy. Sorry to say we're out of time. Cheryl, thank you very much. Good to have you back.